In the past week, Turkey's governing party, the AFK, regained its majority. There are sparks in the South China Sea as America infringes upon alleged Chinese territorial waters and a Russian airliner crashes in Sinai due to external influence. It's Tuesday the 3rd of October 2015 and you're listening to the Oxford International Relations Society podcast, The Beacon. Welcome to The Beacon. I'm your host, Will Yeldon. Our focus this week is the upcoming EU referendum and the question of Brexit. Six months ago, the chances of Brexit, Britain departing from the European Union, seemed remote. Today, largely because of Europe's migration crisis and the interminable Euro mess, the polls have narrowed. Some recent surveys even find the majority of Britons wanting to leave. David Cameron, Britain's Conservative Prime Minister, is partly responsible for this. Although he has repeatedly urged his party to stop banging on about Europe, his Eurosceptic backbenchers, scared by the rise of Nigel Farage's anti-EU UK Independence Party, have consistently hassled him to adopt a tougher line with Brussels. His response has generally been to appease them. In January 2013, Mr Cameron promised that, if the Tories were re-elected in May 2015, he would renegotiate Britain's membership and hold an in-out referendum by the end of 2017. Fresh from his election victory, the Prime Minister claims now to have embarked on a renegotiation to fix what he says is wrong with the EU. However, he has been deliberately vague about what changes he wants, partly for fear that if his shopping list leaks, Eurosceptics in his own party will rubbish it as inadequate. However, at the most recent European summit, on October the 15th to 16th, he was told by his fellow heads of government to produce a list of precise demands in November if there was to be any chance of the negotiations being concluded, as he had at one time hoped at the December European summit. What exactly is Britain looking to get out of a renegotiation? Will it find any sympathy with other EU countries? And how would a potential Brexit affect Britain's diplomatic and economic position on the world stage? To answer these questions in more detail, I spoke to Dr Tim Oliver, Darendorf Fellow on Europe-North America Relations at the London School of Economics. He is also a non-resident fellow at the Centre for Transatlantic Relations at John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, DC. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr Oliver. Firstly, could you quickly outline exactly what prompted David Cameron to call this referendum? Well, I suppose there were two factors that contributed to him calling the referendum. First of all, there are the strong domestic tensions within the Conservative Party and the demands that have been building up over, well, for a long time for some form of EU referendum or some referendum on a European matter, whether it was the Lisbon Treaty or before it on the Euro and so forth. So this has been coming up for a long time. So there were tensions within the Conservative Party that David Cameron could not ignore forever. Um, he just wasn't going to be able to kind of kill them off as, they, as, as he liked. Um, but the second factor was a recognition that something has changed with regard to Britain's position in the European Union that he needed to tackle. Um, and this isn't just something that the, the Conservative Party realised. Um, the Liberal Democrats and the Labour Party, they also have tensions over um, the issue of Europe. It was the Liberal Democrats, the most pro-European of Britain's political parties, that first committed themselves to an in-out referendum. It wasn't the Tories or the Labour Party, mm. it was the Lib Dems. Labour Party have been split over this for a long time, so it's not just the Conservatives. And for all three parties, and for all parties in British politics, they've been trying to understand how Britain can fit in a changing European Union, changing European Union, where the Eurozone is pushing forward European integration, largely, uh, more largely than any other part of the European Union, and a European Union in a changing world. What does Britain want out of the EU? And therefore, how can we settle this matter? And one way that David Cameron thought he could settle it was by calling a referendum. Great. And I mean, what is he looking to get out of a renegotiation with Europe? Increased trade deals, more freedom? Well, here we run into a problem in that, yes, everybody feels, well, a lot of people felt a referendum was a, was one of the ways 
by which um, Britain could try and tackle this issue of Europe in British politics. The problem is Cameron also committed himself to holding a renegotiation. Now, this makes a certain logical sense if you think about it. He said he wanted to renegotiate Britain's relationship with the European Union and then put that renegotiated um, um, relationship to a vote. That makes sense. It would increase the possibility of the British people voting to stay in. But no one's sure what he wants, and he's not sure what he wants. You survey different, and I have surveyed different countries around the European Union to find out what they've been in discussions with the UK government over with regard to renegotiation. And it becomes clear that the British government has been going around almost asking other countries, what do you think we could ask you for? Not coming along with a list of demands, but actually going around and sensing and feeling out exactly what the rest of the EU might actually be prepared to give the UK. And that doesn't really sound like much of a plan has been thought through. What we can say is that he wants five general vague things, such as a bigger role for national parliaments in European decision-making, an end or some form of opt-out or some form of exclusion for the UK from the idea of ever closer union, for an increase in competitiveness um, within the European Union, for some form of um, guards or protections um, for non-Eurozone members against the Eurozone caucusing and therefore deciding how the European Union shall be run, and then some form of, um, of action on immigration. And the area he's probably going to push on is in-work benefits for EU migrants. The problem is most of that can be done already. You don't need to push a big renegotiation. So that's caused quite a bit of frustration elsewhere in the European Union. Um, on the one hand, they all realize that he wants something, but they don't know what he wants. And when he comes along with some ideas, they think, well, this isn't actually much of a renegotiation. I mean, the LSE's um, Europe blog has actually been, you've been running a, a series looking at different perspectives within the EU upon Britain's renegotiation. Um, you highlight Denmark as a firm supporter, but Slovenia and Ireland as less enthusiastic. Could you give a quick breakdown of Britain's regions of support within the EU? Okay, yes. Um, even a country like Denmark, to say to start with, um, yes, its government is minded to support the UK on a renegotiation. But even there, there are strong caveats in terms of, well, we won't support you on, well, we'll only support you so far on this. So every country has caveats, even those countries that are supportive of the UK, um, the UK's attempt to try and bring about some change. Because all countries in the European Union are pushing for some form of renegotiated um, European Union. It's not just the UK. I think um, a Dutch um, contribution to a report I edited last year on what a British exit from the EU would mean for the European Union. Mm. Um, the Dutch contribution said that Britain suffers from a narcissistic victimization mentality and that, <laughs> only, that Britain tends to think only we suffer from the European Union. Only we can see the way forward. Only we are pushing for changes. When that's news to the Greeks, that's news to the Germans. <laughs> they all have problems with the European Union. They're all grappling with the problems and how to change the European Union. This isn't just a British problem. What we can say in terms of how different parts of Europe view the idea of a renegotiation or the British exit, well, if you split it down into just the basic division of North, South, East and Western Europe, you can say that Northern Europeans are worried about the loss of a large, outwardly looking liberal economic pushing agenda um, countries such as the United Kingdom. Western Europeans, even France, are worried about a the loss of a large Western European country shifting the balance of power in Europe further east. Eastern European countries, well, they feel a bit like orphans um, of, of, or kind of British European orphans. They were big fans of the United Kingdom for many years, pushed their membership of the European Union back in the 1990s. And now, if they listen to Britain's political debate, it's very poisonous 
with regard to Eastern European immigrants, and they therefore feel a little bit um, pushed out, um, a little bit orphaned. And then the Southern Europeans. Um, the Southern Europeans worry that a British exit or some form of big renegotiation of Britain's membership of the European Union could begin the unraveling of the European Union. It could begin, it could raise questions again about a Brexit. So each part of the European Union has worries about a British exit or a British renegotiation. But, and this is one of the most important things to remember, Britain is one now of several problems that the European Union faces. And when you look at it from Berlin or Warsaw or Athens or Copenhagen, you have the problems with the Eurozone, you have problems in Ukraine, you have the immigration problem, you have a wider economic problem with, the, with regard to European competitiveness, and then you have Britain. Britain has become a problem that the rest of the European Union is dealing with. And at the moment, the rest of the European Union isn't paying it that much attention, partly because Cameron hasn't come along with an actual list of renegotiation demands. He hasn't set a date for the referendum. So the rest of the EU doesn't see why it should do anything yet until Cameron actually tells them what he's going to do. Um, you mentioned uh, fears of disintegration. If Britain were to leave the EU, would you expect to see other countries, potentially Austria, be next? Well, this is a worry elsewhere in the European Union, that a British exit of a British referendum or a successful big renegotiation deal, if Britain did actually ask for something big and managed to get it, um, then that would begin a kind of a domino effect, as we often talk about in, in international relations, that another country would want something. So people have talked about an Auxit, um mm. for Austria. People have talked about um, countries such as Denmark, for example, asking for more. Some Eastern European countries beginning to ask for different things. The Greeks possibly reopening some of their, renegoti um, their negotiations over their membership of the Eurozone and so forth. There is that worry. Um, however, one of the key things here is how Germany reacts. Mm. If Germany um, were to um, be badly affected by a British exit or a bad or British renegotiation, then we could see um, a real problem within the European Union. At the moment, that doesn't seem likely, although, of course, events may prove us wrong. Um, most other countries in the European Union, whether it's Austria, whether it's Cyprus, whether it's Greece, Poland, and so forth, they look to Germany first. They don't look to Britain. If Germany took fights over a British exit or a British renegotiation, then we have problems. At the moment, however, it doesn't seem to be the case that that will happen. Um, if we broaden this discussion out, um, you've recently argued that Brexit will not only affect Britain and Europe, but also Britain's wider relationships, particularly with the United States. Obama recently received quite a lot of criticism from Eurosceptics for his comments that having the United Kingdom in the European Union gives us much greater confidence about the strength of the transatlantic union, which does seem a little yeah. threatening. Is it fair for the US to be concerned? The United States, first of all, from the United States perspective, there is some um, concern amongst the diplomatic community that Britain may hold its referendum um, next year at the same time as the presidential election in the United uh -huh. States. I don't think that's going to happen, although um, you, know, you never know. Um, so it could easily become one of those little issues that presidential candidates get asked about. If that were to happen, um, not even a Republican nominee is likely to say, um, I want to see Britain leave the European Union. Um, they'll probably play it more neutral than the Democrats. The Democrats will, will probably play it up in terms of Hillary Clinton. She's the candidate. Will probably say something about how Britain and the European Union strengthens the transatlantic relationship, just like Obama did. Mm. I think um, the, the Republican Party will play it more neutral than that. But even the Republican Party, they don't want to see um, some form of major disruption to the European Union and the transatlantic trade um, partnership, um, which is going through at the moment. Again, for the United States, they look at this um, in terms of, um, let's put it 
in a very grand international relations term. They see it geopolitically. From their perspective, a British exit or British renegotiated relationship within the European Union is seen from a much different, from a much higher level. What would a British exit or renegotiation mean for Ukraine? What would it mean for Turkey? What would it mean for EU-NATO relations? What would it mean for the transatlantic trade and investment partnership, the trade deal that's being negotiated at the moment between the US and the European Union? What would it mean in terms of perceptions by Russia of the European Union? We've just had, and will be published soon on the LSE blog, a view from Russia on what a British exit would mean. And it was very clear that it would just confirm for some people in Russia that the European Union is unraveling and weakened and deeply divided and therefore something that can be easily swept aside. Um, so from a United States perspective, there is a concern, a geopolitical concern. And let's not forget that the United States has been a sperm supporter of British membership of the European integration project since the 1960s. Um, the United States has been a firm backer of European integration since the 1940s, 1950s. They don't want to see the Europeans fall apart again. They don't. There are some concerns in Washington about the European Union being a strategic competitor. But at the moment, the European Union seems so weak and divided and potentially um, flawed um, that the United States is more worried about some form of inward-looking, chaotic, deeply divided Europe that can't get its act together. That would not be a, something the United States would welcome. And if a British exit or renegotiation added to that, then that would add to American concerns. Mm. Well, I think that's probably all we've got time for, but this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for speaking. Thank you, Will. Thank you very much. Cheers. Next, I spoke to Professor Eric Jones. Professor Jones is Director of Europe and Eurasian Studies at the Paul H. Nietzsche School of Advanced International Studies of the John Hopkins University. He's also Senior Research Fellow at Nuffield College, Oxford. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor Jones. Firstly, could you give me an outline of exactly what changes Britain or David Cameron is looking to get out of a renegotiation? I think, I think that's a great question. I mean, uh, and particularly the, the distinction between Britain and David Cameron. We, we should probably talk at some point about what Scotland wants to get out of the yeah. negotiation, uh, because the SNP, I think, has a certain agenda that's very different from what David Cameron would like to pursue. Um, when David Cameron did his Bloomberg speech in 2013, I don't think it was very clear what he wanted to get out. Obviously, there's some symbolic repatriation of powers, and there's some commitment that the goal of ever closer union uh, is going to be put on ice. But but the bottom line is what David Cameron really wants is not something from Europe. What David Cameron wants is unity within the Conservative Party, and he's mm. going to look for concessions from Europe in order to achieve that objective. Now, the reason that I put it that way is because the, the, there are elements in the Conservative Party that, that quite sincerely want to get out of the European Union. So, so if you were to say, what is Britain looking to get out of a renegotiation, what they're looking for is a completely different kind of relationship. And I think we're going to have to accept the fact that, that that feeling is not limited to the United Kingdom. There are people who want a completely different kind of relationship in many different member states. And the question is, is how can we provide those different relationships without losing that integral whole that makes the European Union function adequately as, a, as an international society? Mm. I know that drags us a little bit away from your question, but 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 I, I, I want to underscore the fact that the domestic political objectives that are driving this debate are not necessarily coherent from one country to the next. And what what is the domestic political objective of, of David Cameron is not necessarily consistent with a coherent view of European integration. Mm. That's surprising to me because the, the Bloomberg speech itself, the speech from 2013, uh, actually provided quite a sophisticated and interesting understanding of how European integration is meant to work. 
And had we remained true to that particular vision, I think we'd be having a very different conversation today. So do you think Britain and David Cameron are going to find it quite difficult to find any sympathy in Europe for a renegotiation, uh, given their rather lax or lacklustre attempts at helping the refugee crisis? I I, I think that's a really interesting question. I I think it's interesting primarily because it highlights the extent to which the refugee crisis has sucked all of the oxygen out of the room. And to the extent to which there's a desire to deal with the British referendum on the part of other European member states, that desire is has rapidly vanished as they struggle to deal with the problem of maintaining some kind, something like a free movement of people while at the same time divvying up these these refugees that are coming from the Middle East. Mm. Now, as you ask the question, you ask the question suggesting that the UK was playing uh, less than its its equitable role in dealing with the refugees, and I'm sure that that case can be made. I think the more important point, though, is not what the UK is doing in, in, in taking on refugees. I think the more important point is that there is no fundamental agreement across the member states as to what equity should look like in dealing with this kind of a problem. Mm-hmm. So the UK can be singled out and criticized for, for a particular policy, but only if you ignore the many other terrible things that are happening, uh, including the fences that are going up between between Schengen countries. Mm-hmm. So so I think it, it probably wouldn't be wise to over-exaggerate the, the role of the British as bad boys in the refugee crisis. I think, I, I think it probably makes more sense to say, look, whatever the Brits do is not going to be the right thing in the context of this crisis because there is no understanding, generally accepted understanding, of what that right thing might be. And as they wrestle with that, I think the opportunities for David Cameron to have meaningful negotiations about the future of Britain's relations with Europe are, are greatly diminished just because the political attention is going elsewhere. Hmm. Much has been made by Eurosceptics of the uh, Norway model and um, how that this would help curb migration as well as granting more economic freedom. Could you quickly outline exactly what that is? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so um, my mom comes from Norway. Uh, and, and, and I guess if you really want to have a successful Norway model, um, you're going to have to find an awful lot more uh, hydrocarbons underneath the North Sea, uh, because because the key to the Norway model is that Norway has a giant sovereign wealth fund, uh, and and for a relatively small population, a, a reasonably significant amount of of hydrocarbon related revenue that they can rely on, and so they can afford to to have the most expensive possible relationship with Europe that anybody could possibly imagine. Um, I'm not sure that that's a good model for the UK to try to follow. Uh, I think it's also worth noting that, that Norway does reside inside the Schengen area. Uh, and, and even though it's not an EU member state, it has open borders with the rest of Europe. So if we're going to the Norway model, is the implication going to be that, that Britain is going to somehow relax the controls on its borders? I don't think so. So this idea of the Norway model is really a let's have our cake and eat it too. We're going to order a la carte from the menu. Uh, and I think that the experience that most people have ordering a la carte is that it's very expensive and you often end up with choices that you didn't really like. And I think that's what the more Norway model represents. Many Eurosceptics took the recent visit of President Xi to the UK as testament of the UK's attraction for foreign investments and its ability to thrive on its own outside of the European Union. Is this really a fair judgment? If the question that you're asking is that, you know, will foreigners uh, lose interest in investing in the UK should the UK redefine its nation relationship with the European Union, 
I think it depends on which foreigners you're talking about. Hmm. Certainly, certainly for banks, it will become much more attractive to, to relocate to other financial centers inside the European Union where they're going to face a common rule book that they can understand and where they're going to get access to, to a larger, uh, a, a larger home financial market. I think this constitutes a significant threat to the viability of the city of London as a world financial center and would be very reluctant encourage the United Kingdom to break its relations with the European Union if it wants to maintain the, this financial preeminence. As for other industries, I, I think it really will depend on the extent to which they're able to negotiate adequate access to European markets. Look, you know, the UK has very talented workforce and it has a great opportunity to produce things to sell, but, but it's got to get those things out of the country and somewhere else because domestic demand is not large enough mm. to justify massive foreign investment. If the UK can can maintain liberal access to European markets and liberal access to the United States, um, then I think that that it should be fine as a as a site for foreign direct investment into manufacturing and, and other uh, similar services. But but there's a big if that surrounds that and that hesitation constitutes a form of risk that any investor is going to have to factor into their calculation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think the immediate, immediate aspect or impact of, of a negative referendum outcome would be to tilt the scales away from making foreign direct investments into the United Kingdom until they know what that market access into Europe and the United States is going to look like. So if we focus a bit more on trade, um, so triggering, triggering Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty would mean that uh, to negotiate the way back to a trade deal with the rest of Europe would take around maybe two years. Britain also has free trade deals with more than 50 countries around the world. These would all have to then be rebuilt from scratch. How disastrous would this be for Britain's economic growth? Well, I think, you know, I think it's a bit much to assume that, that we suddenly get reset. I mean, it's not like rebooting the hard drive <laughs> and suddenly all trade relations go back to original factory settings. I think what what we would see would be a negotiated transition from one arrangement to another, and the process of that negotiation would be long and challenging and would certainly absorb the attention of a number of different ministries and colleagues on both sides of the Atlantic. And I think that would create a certain amount of, of uncertainty, which would affect foreign direct investment for all the reasons that I just explained. But mm-hmm. But in terms of you know, direct trading relations. No, I don't think they're going to snap the door closed, and, and and the United Kingdom is going to have to wait for two years to figure out how to trade again. I think it's just going to be an, an awkward and cumbersome transition process where firms will do business much as they have done, but with a heightened sense of uncertainty about how long and how uh, how far into the future those those uh, relationships can remain in place. Um, you mentioned Scotland earlier. What impact would a Brexit have on moves for Scottish independence? Um, would you see another another referendum? Well, I mean, you think about the the Scottish referendum outcome was a vote for the status quo. If you change the status quo, then you legitimate the argument for another referendum. Mm-hmm. And I think that the Scottish Nationalist Party would would use a negative vote on EU membership as a justification for saying, well, we need to go back again to the Scottish people to see whether they are still interested in remaining inside the United Kingdom in a context where the United Kingdom has changed fundamentally its relations with the outside world. Mm. I don't want to scaremonger about this, but it does seem to be an awkward context in which to have that Scottish independence conversation, particularly if you find yourself on the unionist camp.
How damaging would a Brexit be to Britain's position on the world stage? I mean, would it would it detract from its relationship with the US or China, or would it still be able to function as an independent country outside of the EU? The immediate US reaction to the Bloomberg speech was for the assistant, then Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs to come out and say, look, this is a choice for the British people, but, but the United States has a very strong interest in a strong Britain within a strong Europe. Um, mm. I think more recently we've seen China's reaction is very much along the same line. Nobody wants to have multiple interlocutors at the global stage where they can have single interlocutors, right? So like the European Union as a single entity where they can negotiate lasting and meaningful trade agreements. And of course, everybody loves the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom has done great things for world culture and has great promise uh, looking to the future as well. So it's not just a country of history, but also uh, a, a country that, that will shape our fate as a globe. But but the reality is, it's much easier to deal with one larger European entity than it is to deal with multiple smaller European entities, among which the United Kingdom would be particularly important. And so for most world powers, the idea of having some kind of coordination on the European side of the Atlantic is, is, is very useful. And if the UK wants to opt out of that, arrangement that's going to make things more cumbersome. So let's turn to the European Union as a whole. Would it um, impact badly upon the EU's international standing and and also security? Impact on the European Union would be (coughs) pretty significant in terms of EU morale. Mm. Uh, If you were to go to the the European Commission right now, this is not the heyday. (coughs) Europhilia, where everybody is all excited uh, looking to the future. I think right now the, the morale within the European Union is relatively low. This would be another blow to that. And the European Union does accomplish a number of very useful things. So seeing its morale diminished and, and seeing other member states beginning to look to redefine their relationship, I think would be problematic. So I'm, I'm not eager to say that getting rid of the United Kingdom from the European Union would be a good thing for the European Union. On the contrary, I, I, I think I would argue that it would be a bad thing. It would create more division. And let's not forget, you know, the support for British entry, both in the early 1960s and in the early 1970s, had a lot to do with the constructive role that Great Britain can play, balancing other large powers on behalf of the smaller member states. And losing that balancing influence, I think, would also be a significant loss, particularly for those smaller member states that look to the United Kingdom as a different kind of political alternative from what they see in France and what they see in Germany. So I I don't think it's good for for the EU as a whole for Britain to leave. I think that's probably all we've got time for, Professor Jones, but thank you so much for speaking. Well, it was terrific talking with you, Will. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this week. What are your thoughts? Do get involved by visiting our website, www.oxirsoc.com, our Facebook and Twitter feeds, and comment to keep the debate going. Similarly, we are currently accepting both submissions for our termly print edition of Sir on the theme barriers and more general blog articles. So for more information, do visit the website or email sir-editor at irsoc.org. Special thanks to our speakers, Dr. Tim Oliver and Professor Eric Jones, for taking the time to speak with us. And also to our sponsors, Morgan Stanley, John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the University of Kent. Please note that any opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the speakers and host and do not in any way represent Oxford International Relations Society as a whole. Next week, we'll be focusing on Russia, looking at its actions in Ukraine and relationship with China and the West. I do hope, I do hope you can join us then. 
goodbye.